Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 46, not 45 like it says on the top of the outline. It's 46 and 47. These are the two chapters that God's providence has appointed for us. And I want to stress that because um, I am the last preacher that ever picks topics for the times. Um, That would not be an accusation you could make of me. Oh, you just picked that because, no, that's not how I've ever done it. In fact, we would just go through the Bible and the, the, the way I decide what book I will preach through next is I, as I'm getting to the end of one series, I go to the elders and say, There's, here's three or four books I've been reading through and praying about and thinking about, and you guys email me and tell me which one I should start next. And the most votes wins, and that's how I started Isaiah a year and a half ago. It's the Bible. I'm not going to go wrong as long as I just start it and go through it with you. It just works out, however, that Isaiah in this moment is writing chapter 46 to Israel, God's people, now reduced to Judah, just two tribes left after the northern tribes were judged and, and basically dispersed. Now it's down to two tribes called Judah. Assyria's falling, Babylon's rising. Babylon will reach a pinnacle that's unlike most uh, empires had ever seen. It was short-lived, but it was, it was high when they got there. And they're rising, and it's going to come about where Judah's going to get attacked and overrun by Babylon, and Babylon's going to deport some of their best and brightest. This is when Daniel goes from Judah over to Babylon. And so it's going to be a depressing time. It's going to seem like the northern kingdom again, like they're getting dispersed and they're going to lose their identity. And so Isaiah is preparing Judah for that event when they are in exile in Babylon. Just when they thought things would, could get no tougher, here they are ex- exiled. They would be in Babylon when Persia is raised up to destroy Babylon. And here they are, miles away from their homeland, in Babylon, living among people who are being judged by God. What do they do? What do the people of God do when they find themselves in a nation under judgment? Again, I did not put us here. This is just where we are. And so I'll let you draw the connections, although I'll draw a few. I'll read chapter 46 first. I'll hold off on 47. We'll get there as the sermon uh, unfolds. So look with me now as I read God's holy word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 46. It's there printed. It's on page 607 of your pew Bible. You will definitely need your Bible open for this sermon so you can follow through these two chapters. Here, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. Into gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it it stands there. It cannot move from its place. 
If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him or from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we read of a time when Judah was living in exile. They were living in a nation, Babylon, that was falling. Times were tough for them as Babylon crumbled. But Lord, you promised to be with them and to ultimately save them. Please strengthen your people today, wherever they find themselves, in any nation. Please strengthen them with the same timeless message that you have chosen them, you have called them, you preserve them, you will save them ultimately. As things are challenging for your people in many places on earth, give them strength and courage to trust you and obey your commands, even in difficult oppression. And even as things seem to be growing increasingly antagonistic toward Christianity and your word in our own country, strengthen us, ready us with conviction and courage. If it be your will, give us influence so there might be checks and changes to stave off your judgment. But Lord, whatever the case is, whatever your will may be, call us to a revival. Call us to a renewed trust in you, a love for you, and a desire to obey you. Pray this through Christ. Amen. There is a repeated theme in history, and it shows itself in the Bible. We've seen it already as we have studied through Isaiah. This theme of nations rising and falling. Egypt rising and falling. Uh, Assyria rising and falling. Babylon up, Babylon down. Greece up. Greece down, Rome up, Rome down. It happens. And we should know this to be part of God's providence, part of his working of history. Uh, When it says in Daniel, very bluntly, he, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And we know he does this for the purpose of his own glory. And we know that he has special watch care for his people, wherever they may be. Before the time of Christ and his resurrection... It was the people of God quantified in Israel. Uh, It was identified with a nation. After Jesus rose again and the gospel and the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled and people from all nations become children of Abraham by faith in Christ, uh, God's people no longer identified as a nation but as a people, his church. And they can be identified in all sorts of nations. Here, Virtually every empire that rises and falls has the same notion. It is going to be the eternal nation. It is going to be the one that outlasts them all. 
Every emperor thinks that he is greater than the emperor he conquered. And they go well for a while. God allows for the prosperity of the wicked. And he will even use these nations in the life of his church to hone them, to purify them. But when he is done with their purpose, then they will be judged for the things that they have given to, for worshiping themselves as their own gods, for the idols they make, for the idolatry that they promote. They ultimately find their demise. This is always, always, always true. Any nation who sets itself up against God's glory will lose. It's just a matter of time. And if that nation oppresses his people in the midst of it, that losing will come faster. And that's what we see over and over again in history, and it will be that way until Christ returns and establishes his eternal kingdom in its fullness. But it makes for a good question. What should Christians do when they find themselves in a nation that hates their God and hates them? Make no mistake, we as Americans don't understand this like so many of our brothers and sisters do in the world. Come tonight and listen to Pastor Mohammed talk about oppression and persecution. But that's not to discount the slide we are on, because this is the kind of slide you could see in other places that are now in full persecution. So it would be naive to not notice some parallel, but recognize that our great God could do a work and stave off such judgment, and we pray for that, and the church could be part of that, but still we recognize what has been given to us in Scripture and draw from it those timeless principles that will help us. So what should... a What should Christians do? What should the church do when it finds itself in a nation that hates their God and hates them? Well, I think we can know for certain what repeats itself is that during such times, we know exactly and explicitly this is why God did it in the life of Israel, such times serve to purify God's people. It it makes them more serious about what they say they believe. It causes them to really stand up and be counted for who they say they align with. Is it Jesus or not? And so there's a a pressure that comes to bear that's painful. It doesn't feel good. I'm not asking for it. But when it comes, it's real. And it makes the church go from superficial to deep and strong and ultimately has a greater impact when it's like this. That's one thing that can come from this. Times of national duress can serve to purify and strengthen God's people. This is certainly a timeless message. Let's look first at what God does with Babylon, this picture of idolatry, this picture of a nation that worshipped itself and its sensuality and its stuff and its autonomy. The first two verses of chapter 46 uh, address Babylon. Then there's a bit of a mixture as it addresses the people of God, calling the people of God to recognize what's going to happen to this nation and how are they connected to it. And then chapter 47 really lays out what's going to happen to Babylon. Look at the first two verses of chapter 46. You see how this idolatrous Babylon will be under God's judgment. And that's true of all such nations. It says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. Bel is Murdoch, the god of Babylon, and Nebo is Murdoch's son. Of course, these are mythological. These are things that came over time, even through the Assyrians. They, almost, they basically adopted the Assyrians' gods and made them superior, saying they're Babylonian now. And there were many idols associated with these gods, literal statues that were to represent those gods. And so God, through Isaiah, is saying, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, and their idols are in beasts and livestock. Now the people of God were in Babylon. 
they were certainly tempted to compromise to Babylon's gods. Remember Daniel? Remember how he was, was trying to, they were trying to force him to compromise? And so this was a constant struggle. When you live in Babylon as God's people, it's difficult. It, it, it could be easier just to bow down to their idols so they would get off our back, we might think. And so God's calling the people of God to recognize what happens to idolatrous nations. If you're tempted to go after their gods, know what will happen to you too. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. These idols, these statues, they have to be carried by oxen. Uh, they're burdens. They're heavy. Not just literally, but figuratively, to, or figuratively as well. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. When one nation is taken by the other, those gods did not stop it. The Assyrian gods did not stop the Babylonians. So what good are these gods? They go into captivity too. If you worship the gods of an idolatrous nation, you'll go with those gods where they go. That's what they're saying. That's what's being said. That's what the people of God are hearing. Don't think it's so great what Babylon has. Now, skip to chapter 47. We'll come back to 46 because it addresses the people of God in particular. But chapter 47 is a description of what God will do to Babylon. Now, recognize we know that the fate of Babylon is, was destruction. But this is being written before Babylon reaches its apex. Babylon's an ancient civilization. They joined up with the Chaldeans, and that's what put them over the edge to be able to take out the Assyrians. They lost several battles to the Assyrians. But with the Chaldeans at their side, no longer. They beat the Assyrians, and they celebrated like no empire celebrated, with every kind of, of license you can imagine to the things they did. We know from archaeology the kind of lives they live. I mean, you can imagine what archaeology will find uh, when we're gone, on hard drives, and on whatever else is left. But Babylon left behind a lot of broken ruins that told us where their devotion was. And so they celebrated like no empire celebrated the hanging gardens in Babylon, where modern Iraq is now. Supposedly all the most glorious things of all Mesopotamia were there when Babylon reached the apex. And so this is what's in view, what's coming for the person who's hearing this prophecy. We know what happened. But now look what God promises he'll do to this great Babylon. Verse 1 of chapter 47, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Your days are over. Your days of prosperity and partying and celebrating and living as though there was no tomorrow. It's over now. Verse 2, Take the millstones and grind flour. You better start working now. You're not going to have servants doing it for you. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. You were this fair maiden who had everybody waiting on you. And you were the, everyone looked at you on the earth and said, how beautiful you are. Well, no longer. Start working, honey. That's what's going to happen, Babylon. That's what's coming to you, Babylon. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and, you, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer. The Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Make no mistake, who will bring this upon Babylon? It will be Israel's God, the only God, the true God. Verse 5, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughters of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. No one will look at you with favor any longer, or with fear for that matter. 
Their reign was over. They were now under judgment. Verse 6, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. In other words, Babylon, I used you to bring discipline to my people, but you let loose on them. I mean, you poured it out on them with no mercy whatsoever in the worst possible way you could. You poured it out and you poured it out. Now you will pay. Now your time has come. Now you will meet judgment. And so God is forecasting a day when this nation would be under judgment and his people would be living among. This is the picture that's being set. Verse 8. Now therefore, hear this, you lovers of ple- you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am. And there is no one besides me. Do you see how that's exactly what God says for only himself, but Babylon's typified as saying, I set the rules. And I want you to hear this. An idolatrous nation thinks it can make up its own rules because it's God. Its pleasures determine its rules. If I want to do this, this can be so. And don't you tell me I can. If you won't, I will crush you. That's Babylon. That's what Babylon did. That's exactly what's described. Now, therefore, verse 8, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. No one is going to stop me from doing exactly what I want to do. That is a nation under judgment. Babylon, the arrogant, the prideful, they thought that they attained their own victories and amassed their own power. They worshipped Babylon, worshipped Babylon. They had done their task. They would now fall under God's judgment. Verse 9. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments, God promises an end to their godlessness as the end of their purpose came. Their purpose was for honing and purifying his people. They had done their task. Now it was time for them to answer for their wickedness and come under God's judgment. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no no one besides me. You said that you were God, that you had the right to be God. You had the right to make the rules the way you saw them, and you had the right to make everyone adhere to those rules, and if they didn't, you would crush them. Verse 11, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Just like Satan tried to usurp God, So Babylon tried to take the place of God. Just like Adam and Eve tried to take the fruit so that they could be like God, so Babylon thought themselves as a deity conqueror of some sort. God says that they will now be judged in their false faith and practices with it. Verse 12, stand fast in your enchantments. Just stay with what you've been saying you believe in. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries. 
with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. Let's see how it works for you, this faith you have in yourself, Babylon. Verse 13, you are wearied with your many counsels. You have so many experts saying so many things, you can't even follow them yourself. All your philosophies, all the answers you have to life, all the ways in which you've discovered this or discovered that, all your wisdom says you have wearied your, your, you are wearied with many counsel, your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. You, you can sense the, the taunting or the jeering that God applies to these false God worshipers of Babylon, these false counselors who seek their revelation in themselves. And it's on the eve of their judgment. The eventual end for the nations and kingdoms that oppose God and his righteousness is judgment. There are no exceptions. Verse 14, behold, they are like stubble. We read this exact thing about Egypt. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. We saw this happen to Assyria. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored who have done business with you from your youth, they wander about, each in his own direction, there is no one to save you. Babylon would be used of God to purify his people, no question. But Babylon's usefulness would end with their idolatry, and their over-oppression and persecution of God's people in their midst hastened their demise. And it doesn't matter the nation, this will be that nation's end when they are godless, and especially if they seek to crush God's presence among them, which is found in his people. The history of the world is a story of nations and empires that prospered and later turned to dust. Will we learn the lessons of history? Some nations declined slowly over time to their demise. Others were destroyed in an instant. We do live in a nation in decline. Every indicator says that. We could repeat greatness over and over again, but it's not true. Moral indicators are the most obvious ones. Economic indicators aren't great either. And while this is certainly grievous to us as Christians who are members of this nation, it should not be surprising to us. We just look at the facts of history, how God has worked, what he says he does in raising and dropping, and the people of God in the middle of it all have an opportunity an opportunity to renew their faith and their trust in God and obey his commands. That's what the prophet's message is. Love and trust the God who has always kept his covenant and obey his commands. Stop believing in the God of Babylon who is only there to hurt you and only wants to see your destruction and believe in the God who has always been faithful to you no matter what the outward circumstances. What an opportunity the church has, the people of God has, when this kind of time comes upon them. In fact, that's the point back at chapter 46. Look at verse 3 now. Such times give opportunity for God's people to honestly evaluate their trust and obedience. Verse 3 now of chapter 46, which is also on the sheet. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. So now, after saying something of judgment about Babylon, he shifts to the people of God, the house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel, for those who are believers... Listen to me, believers, who have been born by me from before your birth. 
carried from the womb. I chose you from the beginning. I made you my own. You are my elect. You are my chosen ones. You are the ones who I placed my, my covenantal favor upon through Abraham. It, it sets them in their place again. They didn't, they didn't choose God. God chose them. Listen to me, my chosen ones, in the midst of this nation you find yourself. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. You know those idols that had to be made and carried by oxen? That's their gods. Your God carries you. That's the difference. And it's a big one. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. That's the message to believers, no matter where they find themselves. If faced with difficult national circumstances, if that would be the case, the people of God must be reminded of God's faithfulness and in that reminder be renewed in their faith and their trust in you, in him. No matter what might have happened in our nation last week or whatever will happen in our nation in the coming week, we are to be reminded of God's faithfulness to us in Christ and that is indeed one of the reasons you come to worship God every week. Because it's so easy to forget for us forgetful people. We live in Babylon. And let me be clear about that. Israel does not equal America in the Old Testament. Israel is a picture of the church, the people of God. America is Babylon. That's who America is. It's not the other way around. And so, living in Babylon, how can we help? Now, let me be clear. I'm not an alarmist or a fatalist because what happened when Babylon listened to Daniel? It went okay for them. When Nebuchadnezzar listened to what the church had to say, Babylon did well. Egypt did well when it listened to Joseph. When a nation listens to God's people, even if they don't believe in that God the same way, that will go better for that nation. And when it turns on God's people, that's when it really goes bad fast. So, to the people of God, he says to us, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you, I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and will save. And he calls us to account, because he's still speaking to the people of God. He's speaking to the people of God who are living in a nation under judgment. And he says, verse 5, To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? You might be tempted to look outside of who you know to be God, the one who chose you. You might be tempted. Verse 6, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and makes it into a a god. Then they fall down and worship. Are you tempted by what you see the Babylonians do? Are you tempted by the faith of the people around you or the actions of the practices of the devotion around you? Verse 17, they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. It stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember that the faith that's expressed by Babylon is false and fake and it doesn't save them. Don't be impressed by it. Don't be pressured by it. It falls. It fails. Follow me. I'm the one who has kept you. I'm the one who will keep you and will save you. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, those who might be tempted to compromise or to abandon their God. Verse 9, remember the former things of old. Recall what I have done for you, for I am God. Remember back to what I did for your fathers. 
Remember what I did when I rescued your people from a nation much greater than Babylon. Remember what I did to their armies. Remember not even too many years ago what I did to the Assyrian army. Remember Sennacherib, the one who beat Babylon? Babylon only beat them because they joined up with the Chaldeans, who, by the way, they don't even like. It'll turn on each other soon enough. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And brothers and sisters, the difference between the believers in this time and us is we've got even more revelation and more of God's miracles ultimately pictured in the raising of Jesus from the dead. We see our God do this. We can be faithful to him no matter what the nation around us tells us to do. And that's, by the way, why people are willing to die for this in other places. Because they know that the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate victory over all, all the powers of darkness. And it's the proof of all the other miracles that ever were performed by God. And so if this be true, what can anyone do to us? Because we will live with our God forever. Verse 9 begins this reminder, declaring, verse 10, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Remember, he just talked to them about you know, referring to their supposed gods and ask them for help when the only God who was ever able to say what would come in the future and then have it come to pass is God, the God of Israel. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east. This is Cyrus in Persia. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. He says to his people that I will bring about exactly what I say. So stand fast in the midst of this difficult time you find yourself. And I think one of the challenges to us, if we think of what it must have been like to be a believer in God, a believer in God living in Babylon and watching Babylon and all its practices and its dealings, it would be very tempting to, to give in to those things. We have to be honest. Just likewise, it's in, whatever nation a Christian finds himself, that nation will have its practices. Many of them will be ungodly, like Babylon. So, it gives us an opportunity when there's pressure to think, maybe there are some ways in which we have succumbed. Maybe there are some ways in which we look more like Babylon than we do Christ. Maybe, like for instance, in Babylon, this, this rank materialism to, ac- to accumulate gold and stuff. I mean, maybe we give into that too. Maybe we're too about pursuing materials. What is materialism? It's the belief that stuff and things give us happiness and provide life. And that's not hard to fall into. And that's certainly true in Babylon, and that was the temptation for the Israelites. Give in to their whole religious scheme, and they'll have more stuff. Sensuality was a huge one in Babylon. It's always been a huge one for human beings. But the worship of pleasure, the worship of euphoric experience, I mean, it could be anything from drugs and substance that just kind of make us escape or make us feel good, completely prevalent today. You can get it in all sorts of ways. Or sensuality in the form of sex and all the ways the internet makes us so available today. I mean, more so than probably any era. So we are, could be tempted, the people of God, to be compromised greatly in the areas, areas of materialism and sensuality. This is a call for us not just to look at the terrible nation around us, but how have we become like Babylon? That's the call and the cry to people of God to consider. Now, Look at verse 12 and 13 as it brings this to uh, 
ahead, at least in chapter 46. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. This is an important verse, brothers and sisters. This is, see what it says. He's not saying very clearly, you are all so bad and wicked and sinful, you must become righteous. You better get righteous. The gospel is always the gospel in the Bible. And I want you to see where the righteousness will come from, the righteousness we need, that we must have. I bring near my righteousness. This is God speaking. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. Synonymous with his righteousness is his salvation. Do you see that? That's always the case. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Ultimately, this is picturing the coming of Jesus himself, the righteous one, our righteous advocate. The righteousness that we need is Jesus. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. The call to the gospel to believe in God and his salvation and his provision of righteousness is the same in the old as it is in the new. The difference is we have the accomplished work recorded for us. They must believe God and his promises, and it's counted to them as righteousness, the righteousness that God provides. We look back upon what God has done upon Christ, and we believe in Christ, the righteous one, the righteous payment for our sins. We believe on Christ, and it's counted, it's credited, it's imputed to us as righteousness. That's how we're saved. That's the gospel, and it's timeless. And that's what the church is about, no matter what nation it finds itself in. What a message, even to your old age, verse 4, back in verse 4 of 46, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will save. This picture of God carrying us, giving us righteousness, providing for us. This is the message to his people in the midst of a nation that is falling. Believe afresh upon God's promises of salvation. Verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. When we hear a message about unrighteousness, and we're challenged to think about how have we looked more like Babylon, if our response is, well, I don't look that much like Babylon, you're missing it. You're completely missing the point. No, that's it. We are sinners, and we have to have God's righteousness. And it puts us in a place of humility before God, and that's when he uses his church in any nation. No one looks at the church and says, salvation is found in me. They should look at the church and say, there's a bunch of people who think salvation is in God alone. Because things won't be pretty for a nation that's under judgment. It must have, it needs the church to be the church at that time. And the church has the security of knowing that God will not leave us or forsake us, that he will bear up under us. There's these pictures that I always give me sweaty palms when I see them. They're workers in the pre-1930 era, era when hundreds of skyscrapers were built in this country, just before the time, like the Empire State Building. And before that time, the laws about what kind of safety harnesses they wore were not nearly like they became after, and for good reason. There's these pictures of men up 80 stories walking across these steel beams, uh, riveting down and, and building buildings. And they're just standing up there with no safety harnesses. And many people died doing this. They found, amazingly, once they required safety harnesses, that productivity doubled in speed. Can you imagine why? Now I'm walking across the beam a lot quicker. And this is before cranes even got as good as they are. 
people, it can be scary to be in a nation under judgment. There's no doubt. But the safety harness of God's promised salvation should hold us and make us know that if we fall, we don't fall to our destruction. God holds us. And that should give us courage. We should, of all people, not be fearful about whatever happens. One of the truly great works of ancient literature is called The City of God by Augustine. Augustine was a leader in the North African Christian church. He lived in the early part of the 5th century, and he witnessed the fall of Rome, the Roman Empire, the mighty Roman Empire. When the Goths sacked Rome under Alaric in 410 AD, guess who the Romans blamed for the fall of Rome? The Christians. Because the Christians weren't true citizens. They thought of themselves as uh, the citizens of heaven, and they didn't help Rome fight off. And Augustine said, wait a minute. This is how I put what Augustine said. Wait a minute. It's you pagans and your idol worship and your immorality and your sensuality and all the ways you worship yourself. That's why you're under judgment. That's the problem. It's not the Christians. It's you and you worshiping the wrong God. And he, in his book, does a wonderful job of basically painting this picture. There is the city of God identified as God's people, who he's called out to be citizens of heaven, ultimately. And there's the city of man, the nations. Now, there's an interaction, and the city of man only stands any kind of chance in temporary terms as it relates rightly with the city of God. So the city of God can help with the city of man, but ultimately the city of man finds its end in judgment. But the city of God is what God develops in the midst of this time to ultimately be the city of heaven. In Augustine exactly uses the Babylon-Israel parallel as he explains this. I love what one uh, commentary on City of God says or how it characterizes. He says, The second part of the City of God presents a Christian understanding of the origins, progress, and ultimate ends of the two cities. The earthly city of man represented by Babylon, rooted in vice and sin, governed by selfish love, and destined to conflict, destruction, and eternal death. And the heavenly city, represented by Jerusalem, rooted in grace and virtue, governed by the love of God, and destined for peace, salvation, and eternal life. Augustine concludes his work by showing the purpose of history is to show the unfolding of God's plan, which involves fostering the city of God, his people, which would eventually be the city of heaven. For this purpose, God initiated all of creation itself in such a grand plan that the fall of Rome is really insignificant. I hope that you are encouraged to be part of the city of God. I hope you recognize that our purpose is to see as many from the city of man rescued as possible. So what are we supposed to do when you live in a nation that's fallen? Be the city of God. Do what God's called us to. Be renewed in your faith and your trust in him. Believe he'll save you. And be encouraged to spread that message and tell that message. And whatever comes upon us to oppress us, we still tell that message. Whatever may befall us, we still present that message. Many are searching. The city of man always comes to dead ends. We need to bring this message that God has given us. God says, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion. For Israel, my glory. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, 
give your people strength and courage today. Give us clear, a clear sense of your love and preservation. Help us to be faithful in times where it may become more difficult. Lord, we pray for our nation as it goes to the polls this week to elect many new leaders. Give your people wisdom and carefulness as they participate. But no matter the results of Tuesday, give your people a zeal to preach the gospel, to worship you, to love you, to obey you, to see the lost saved. Give us a passion for the many lost people who are loyal to the city of man and fail to see its inevitable doom. Lord, if it be your will, cause your people to be revived and give an influence and impact on our land. For the sake of your people, I pray that you would rescue our nation from the brink of your judgment. Whatever the case, we thank you for the needed grace that you will provide no matter what. Pray this in the name of Jesus, our great Savior and the true King of the universe. Amen. Let's be prepared for partaking of the Lord's Supper, that visible sign and seal of his covenant of grace that encourages us in our faith to know that our sins have been paid for. Let's ask God to guide us in this light by singing 598. Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. <laughs> 